Section thirty one of Volume One B of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of sixteen eighty eight by David Hume. Volume One B section thirty one chapter sixteen part four the barbarities exercised by peter over his helpless subjects whom he now regarded as vanquished rebels revived all the animosity of the castilians against him and on the return of henry of transtamer together with du gasquelin and some forces levied anew in france the tyrant was again dethroned and was taken prisoner his brother in resentment of his cruelties murdered him with his own hand and was placed on the throne of castile which he transmitted to his posterity the duke of lancaster who espoused in second marriage the eldest daughter of peter inherited only the empty title of that sovereignty and by claiming the succession increased the animosity of the new king of castile against england but the prejudice which the affairs of prince edward received from this splendid though imprudent expedition ended not with it he had involved himself in so much debt by his preparations and the pay of his troops that he found it necessary on his return to impose on his principality a new tax to which some of the nobility consented with extreme reluctance and to which others absolutely refused to submit this incident revived the animosity which the inhabitants bore to the english and which all the amiable qualities of the prince of wales were not enough to mitigate or assuage they complained that they were considered as a conquered people, that their privileges were disregarded, that all trust was given to the English alone, that every office of honour and profit was conferred on these foreigners, and that the extreme reluctance which most of them had expressed to receive the new yoke was likely to be long remembered against them. They cast, therefore, their eyes towards their ancient sovereign, whose prudence they found had now brought the affairs of his kingdom into excellent order, and the counts of Armagnac, Comminges, and Pericord, the lord d'Albret, with other nobles, went to Paris, and were encouraged to carry their complaints to Charles, as to their lord paramount, against these oppressions of the English government in the treaty of bretigny it had been stipulated that the two kings should make renunciations edward of his claim to the crown of france and to the provinces of normandy maine and anjou john of the homage and fealty due for guyenne and the other provinces ceded to the english but when that treaty was confirmed and renewed at calais it was found necessary 
as Edward was not yet in possession of all the territories, that the mutual renunciations should for some time be deferred, and it was agreed that the parties, meanwhile, should make no use of their respective claims against each other. Though the failure in exchanging these renunciations had still proceeded from France, Edward appears to have taken no umbrage at it, both because this clause seemed to give him entire security, and because some reasonable apology had probably been made to him for each delay. It was, however, on this pretense, though directly contrary to treaty, that Charles resolved to ground his claim of still considering himself as superior lord of these provinces, and of receiving the appeals of his sub-vassals. But as views of policy, more than those of justice, enter into the deliberations of princes, and as the mortal injuries received from the English, the pride of their triumphs, the severe terms imposed by the treaty of peace, seemed to render every prudent means of revenge honourable against them. Charles was determined to take this measure, less by the reasonings of his civilians and lawyers, than by the present situation of the two monarchies. He considered the declining years of Edward, the languishing state of the Prince of Wales' health, the affection which the inhabitants of all these provinces bore to their ancient master, their distance from England, their vicinity to France, the extreme animosity expressed by his own subjects against these invaders, and their ardent thirst of vengeance. And having silently made all the necessary preparations, he sent to the Prince of Wales a summons to appear in his court at Paris, and there to justify his conduct towards his vassals. The Prince replied, that he would come to Paris, but it should be at the head of sixty thousand men. The unwarlike character of Charles kept Prince Edward, even yet, from thinking that that monarch was in earnest in this bold and hazardous attempt. It soon appeared what a poor return the king had received by his distant conquests for all the blood and treasure expended in the quarrel and how impossible it was to retain acquisitions, in an age when no regular force could be maintained sufficient to defend them against the revolt of the inhabitants, especially if that danger was joined with the invasion of a foreign enemy. Charles fell first upon Ponthieu, which gave the English an inlet into the heart of France. The citizens of Abbeville opened their gates to him. Those of Saint-Valéry, Roux, and Crotoy imitated the example, and the whole country was, in a little time, reduced to submission. The dukes of Berry and Anjou, brothers to Charles, being assisted by Du Gasquelin, who was recalled from Spain, invaded the southern provinces, and by means of their good conduct, the favourable dispositions of the people, and the ardour of the French nobility, they made every day considerable progress against the English. 
the state of the prince of wales's health did not permit him to mount on horseback or exert his usual activity shandos the constable of goyenne was slain in one action the captal de bouche who succeeded him in that office was taken prisoner in another and when young edward himself was obliged by his increasing infirmities to throw up the command and return to his native country the affairs of the english in the south of france seemed to be menaced with total ruin the king incensed at these injuries threatened to put to death all the french hostages who remained in his hands but on reflection abstained from that ungenerous revenge after resuming by advice of parliament the vain title of king of france he endeavoured to send succours into gascony but all his attempts both by sea and land proved unsuccessful the earl of pembroke was intercepted at sea and taken prisoner with his whole army near rochelle by a fleet which the king of castile had fitted out for that purpose edward himself embarked for bordeaux with another army but was so long detained by contrary winds that he was obliged to lay aside the enterprise sir robert knolles at the head of thirty thousand men marched out of calais and continued his ravages to the gates of paris without being able to provoke the enemy to an engagement he proceeded in his march to the provinces of maine and anjou which he laid waste but part of his army being there defeated by the conduct of du gasquelin who was now created constable of france and who seems to have been the first consummate general that had yet appeared in europe the rest were scattered and dispersed and the small remains of the english forces instead of reaching goyenne took shelter in brittany whose sovereign had embraced the alliance of england the duke of lancaster some time after made a like attempt with an army of twenty five thousand men and marched the whole length of france from calais to bordeaux but was so much harassed by the flying parties which attended him that he brought not the half of his army to the place of their destination edward from the necessity of his affairs was at last obliged to conclude a truce with the enemy after almost all his ancient possessions in france had been ravished from him except bordeaux and bayonne and all his conquests except calais the decline of the king's life was exposed to many mortifications and corresponded not to the splendid and noisy scenes which had filled the beginning and the middle of it besides seeing the loss of his foreign dominions and being baffled in every attempt to defend them he felt the decay of his authority at home and experienced from the sharpness of some parliamentary remonstrances the great inconstancy of the people and the influence of present fortune over all their judgments this prince who during the vigour of his age had been chiefly occupied in the pursuits of war and ambition began at an unseasonable period to indulge himself in pleasure and being now a widower 
he attached himself to a lady of sense and spirit, one Alice Pierce, who acquired a great ascendant over him, and by her influence gave such general disgust that in order to satisfy the Parliament he was obliged to remove her from court. The indolence also naturally attending old age and infirmities had made him in a great measure resign the administration into the hands of his son, the Duke of Lancaster, who, as he was far from being popular, weakened extremely the affection which the English bore to the person and government of the king. Men carried their jealousies very far against the duke, and as they saw with much regret the death of the Prince of Wales every day approaching, they apprehended less the succession of his son Richard, now a minor, should be defeated by the intrigues of Lancaster, and by the weak indulgence of the old king. But Edward, in order to satisfy both the people and the prince on this head, declared in Parliament his grandson heir and successor to the crown, and thereby cut off all the hopes of the Duke of Lancaster, if he ever had the temerity to entertain any. The Prince of Wales, after a lingering illness, died in the forty-sixth year of his age, and left a character illustrious for every eminent virtue, and from his earliest youth till the hour he expired, unstained by any blemish. His valour and military talents formed the smallest part of his merit. His generosity, humanity, affability, moderation, gained him the affections of all men, and he was qualified to throw a lustre, not only on that rude age in which he lived, and which nowise infected him with its vices, but on the most shining period of ancient or modern history. The king survived about a year this melancholy incident. England was deprived at once of both these princes, its chief ornament and support. He expired in the sixty-fifth year of his age and the fifty-first of his reign, and the people were then sensible, though too late, of the irreparable loss which they had sustained. The English are apt to consider with particular fondness the history of Edward III, and to esteem his reign as it was one of the longest, the most glorious also, that occurs in the annals of their nation. The ascendant which they then begin to acquire over France, their rival and supposed national enemy, makes them cast their eyes on this period with great complacency, and sanctifies every measure which Edward embraced for that end. But the domestic government of this prince is really more admirable than his foreign victories, and England enjoyed by the prudence and vigour of his administration a longer interval of domestic peace and tranquillity than she had been blessed with in any former period or than she experienced for many ages after. He gained the affections of the great, yet curbed their licentiousness. He made them feel his power without their daring, or even being inclined to murmur at it. His affable and obliging behaviour, 
his munificence and generosity made them submit with pleasure to his dominion his valour and conduct made them successful in most of their enterprises and their unquiet spirits directed against a public enemy had no leisure to breed those disturbances to which they were naturally so much inclined and which the frame of the government seemed so much to authorize this was the chief benefit which resulted from edward's victories and conquests his foreign wars were in other respects neither founded in justice nor directed to any salutary purpose his attempt against the king of scotland a minor and a brother-in-law and the revival of his grandfather's claim of superiority over that kingdom were both unreasonable and ungenerous and he allowed himself to be too easily seduced by the glaring prospect of french conquests from the acquisition of a point which was practicable and which if attained might really have been of lasting utility to his country and his successors the success which he met with in france though chiefly owing to his eminent talents was unexpected and yet from the very nature of things not from any unforeseen accidents was found during his lifetime to have procured him no solid advantages but the glory of a conqueror is so dazzling to the vulgar the animosity of nations is so violent that the fruitless desolation of so fine a part of europe as france is totally disregarded by us and is never considered as a blemish in the character or conduct of this prince and indeed from the unfortunate state of human nature it will commonly happen that a sovereign of genius such as edward who usually finds everything easy in his domestic government turn himself towards military enterprises where alone he meets with opposition and where he has full exercise for his industry and capacity edward had a numerous posterity by his queen philippa of hainault his eldest son was the heroic edward usually denominated the black prince from the colour of his armour the prince espoused his cousin joan commonly called the fair maid of kent daughter and heir of his uncle the earl of kent who was beheaded in the beginning of this reign she was first married to sir thomas holland by whom she had children by the prince of wales she had a son richard who alone survived his father the second son of king edward for we pass over such as died in their childhood was lionel duke of clarence who was first married to elizabeth de burr daughter and heir of the earl of ulster by whom he left only one daughter married to edmund mortimer earl of marsh lionel espoused in second marriage violante the daughter of the duke of milan and died in italy soon after the consummation of his nuptials without leaving any posterity by that princess of all the family he resembled most his father and elder brother in his noble qualities 
Edward's third son was John of Gaunt, so called from the place of his birth. He was created Duke of Lancaster, and from him sprang that branch which afterwards possessed the crown. The fourth son of this royal family was Edmund, created Earl of Cambridge by his father, and Duke of York by his nephew. The fifth son was Thomas, who received the title of Earl of Buckingham from his father, and that of Duke of Gloucester from his nephew. In order to prevent confusion, we shall always distinguish these two princes by the titles of York and Gloucester, even before they were advanced to them. There were also several princesses born to Edward by Philippa, to wit, Isabella, Joan, Mary, and Margaret, who espoused, in the order of their names, Ingelram de Cousy, Earl of Bedford, Alfonso, King of Castile, John of Mountfort, Duke of Brittany, and John Hastings, Earl of Pembroke. The Princess Joan died at Bordeaux before the consummation of her marriage. It is remarked by an elegant historian that conquerors, though usually the bane of Bunyan kind, proved often in those feudal limes the most indulgent of sovereigns. They stood most in need of supplies from their people, and not being able to compel them by force to submit to the necessary impositions, they were obliged to make them some compensation, by equitable laws and popular concessions. This remark is, in some measure, though imperfectly justified by the conduct of Edward III, he took no steps of moment without consulting his Parliament, and obtaining their approbation which he afterwards pleaded as a reason for their supporting his measures. The Parliament, therefore, rose into greater consideration during his reign, and acquired more regular authority than in any former time. And even the House of Commons, which during turbulent and factious periods, was naturally depressed by the greater power of the crown and barons, began to appear of some weight in the constitution. In the latter years of Edward, the king's ministers were impeached in Parliament, particularly Lord Latimer, who fell a sacrifice to the authority of the commons, and they even obliged the king to banish his mistress by their remonstrances. Some attention was also paid to the election of their members, and lawyers in particular, who were at that time men of a character somewhat inferior, were totally excluded the house during several parliaments. One of the most popular laws enacted by any prince was the statute which passed into the twenty-fifth of this reign, and which limited the cases of high treason, before vague and uncertain, to three principal heads, conspiring the death of the king, levying war against him, and adhering to his enemies and the judges, were prohibited, if any other cases should occur, from inflicting the penalty of treason without an application to Parliament. The bounds of treason were indeed so much limited by this statute, which still remains in force without any alteration, 
that the lawyers were obliged to enlarge them and to explain a conspiracy for levying war against the king to be equivalent to a conspiracy against his life and this interpretation seemingly forced has from the necessity of the case been tacitly acquiesced in it was also ordained that a parliament should be held once a year or oftener if need be a law which like many others was never observed and lost its authority by disuse edward granted above twenty parliamentary confirmations of the great charter and these concessions are commonly appealed to as proofs of his great indulgence to the people and his tender regard for their liberties but the contrary presumption is more natural if the maxims of edward's reign had not been in general somewhat arbitrary and if the great charter had not been frequently violated the parliament would never have applied for these frequent confirmations which could add no force to a deed regularly observed and which could serve to no other purpose than to prevent the contrary precedents from turning into a rule and acquiring authority it was indeed the effect of the irregular government during those ages that a statute which had been enacted some years instead of acquiring was imagined to lose force by time and needed to be often renewed by recent statutes of the same sense and tenor hence likewise that general clause so frequent in old acts of parliament that the statutes enacted by the king's progenitors should be observed a precaution which if we do not consider the circumstances of the times might appear absurd and ridiculous the frequent confirmations in general terms of the privileges of the church proceeded from the same cause end of section thirty one chapter sixteen part four